0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled BTK Inhibition as an MS Treatment Modality. Where do we stand and where are we headed? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YCW 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. My name is Benjamin Greenberg. I'm a professor of neurology at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. And I'm going to be starting off today talking about why would we consider BTK inhibition for the management of MS. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. O, who will tell you about her illustrious career and background. And she's going to give you much more important information about clinical trials and clinical data. But my portion of the morning is to set things up for Dr. O so that you can interpret the clinical trial data in context. So we're going to start with a video, because that's a lot of fun. And this is going to walk you through, I have to stress, a theory, a hypothesis
1: of pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. Although T cells have traditionally been thought of as the main contributor to MS disease pathogenesis, evidence now shows that B cells are also directly involved in several primary mechanisms, including antigen presentation, T cell activation, and cytokine production. B cells move into the CNS where reactivation leads to neuroinflammation. Cytokines produced in the periphery by both B and T cells attract more lymphocytes and act on the blood brain barrier, increasing adherence of these cells and increasing permeability of the blood brain barrier, allowing invasion of immune cells into the CNS. Once in the CNS, reactivation occurs, resulting in the secretion of pro inflammatory cytokines and the B cell production of antibodies. Attracted by the cytokines, microglia, macrophages, dendritic cells, and activated T-cells, recognize the myelin antigen as foreign and attack the myelin sheath and oligodendrocytes. Antibodies produced by the B-cells attack myelin through complement deposition, causing axonal injury. Damage to the cells exposes new antigens and attracts more T-cells, triggering more neuroinflammation. B-cells act as antigen-presenting cells, promoting T cell activation and producing cytokines and antibodies in the CNS that lead to compartmentalized inflammation thought to contribute to MS pathology. B cells also appear to play a role in the development of progressive MS by way of the formation of lymphoid follicle structures in the meninges that promote ongoing T cell activation within the brain. B cells tend to be the predominant cell type within these structures. It is theorized that the resulting chronic meningeal inflammation promotes subpial injury and is associated with slowly evolving lesions and progressive disease.
0: So when I started in my training more than 20 years ago, well, A, we didn't have videos like this, but B, uh, this wasn't the theory of multiple sclerosis. There wasn't a discussion of meningeal follicles. There wasn't, frankly, much of a discussion of B cells. The entire talk today would have focused on Th1 versus Th2 T cells, and you wouldn't have even heard the mention of microglia, B cells, antibodies, or anything along those lines. The field has shifted dramatically in our understanding of the disease, but I'll just put the caveat, this is our current understanding of the disease. And in 20 years from now, there will likely be a different talk, but we're getting better at this as evidenced by the data we see in the clinic. As we refine our treatments for MS, our patients are doing better. So understanding the mechanisms of disease is quite important, goes without saying. So we're gonna focus on these two cell types for a moment, the B cells and the microglia. So what's shown here is a slide that I'm sure everybody has seen in the past, the evolution of B cells in terms of their maturation development, and then ultimately their function, both as antigen presenting cells and ultimately cells that produce antibodies. Bruton's tyrosine kind kinase, which was identified over 70 years ago as being associated with a genetic disorder leading to immunodeficiency, is critical to activating the B-cell. So once the B-cell receptor is activated, BTK, (Bruton's Styrosine Kinase, transmits a signal to the cells to differentiate, to activate, and ultimately to lead to inflammation. And so it's a critical step in B-cells becoming active. On the flip side, in terms of myeloid lineage cells, specifically microglia, we know that these myeloid cells, like B cells, undergo maturation and differentiation. What's interesting is they have choices to make in their destiny in terms of function. So you can have microglia take on one phenotype, which is listed here as a pro-inflammatory phenotype based on the cytokines produced or that same cell can change its phenotype and become an anti-inflammatory microglial cell. Again, we make that distinction based on the cytokines produced. Now, in reality, there's a spectrum. We paint this as one or the other. It's a little more complicated than that, but at the ends of the spectrum, the pro-inflammatory and the anti-inflammatory, there are very important impacts to the tissue that the microglia resides in, and those are summarized here. So we use these terms M1 and M2 phenotypes. And again, this is just the differentiation of microglia and are they going to promote inflammation, which is the M1 phenotype, resulting in tissue damage, phagocytosis of cells, immune activation of natural killer cells, and a Th1 profile of T cells, or the M2 phenotype. You can imagine a little happy face for our MS patients next to the M2 phenotype, where you get suppression of inflammation, augmentation of the Th2 phenotype of T cells, T regulatory cells, tissue remodeling, and ultimately in animal models, that phenotype promotes protection and repair of the nervous system. So we have these two different cell populations, both of which use Bruton's tyrosine kinase to modulate their phenotype. So I spoke about the B cells. That B cell receptor activation transmits a signal via Bruton's tyrosine kinase. For the microglia, that phenotypic decision between an M1 versus an M2 cell is also dependent on Bruton's tyrosine kinase activation. If you activate it, BTK in a myeloid cell, you get the M1 phenotype. So activation of BTK leads to an active B cell and an active pro-inflammatory microglial cell. So the advantages of inhibiting this enzyme in multiple sclerosis patients. So we have these theories. We have this data that says chronic activation of B cells and microglia or either or in the central nervous system leads to damage. We know that they each rely on Bruton's tyrosine kinase to achieve a certain phenotype that leads to that damage. And while a lot of the therapies we use work outside the central nervous system to alter the immune system, in theory, Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibition could give you both Both a change in the B cell activation in the periphery, but also potentially in the CNS affecting microglia and those meningeal follicles. So there are a lot of theories, a lot of theories as to why this is a very unique target for a therapeutic in multiple sclerosis. But some people have said, you know, Ben, we're doing a great job. Remember, you started by saying we're in the era of B-cell depletion. The number one therapy used in, in the United States for multiple sclerosis is a B-cell, the class of B-cell depleting drugs. And the reason is they're in that group of drugs and they're not alone of highly effective therapies. Why would we look to another therapy? So when you look at anti-CD20 based therapies, they achieve their benefit by reducing the count of B-cell by total depletion of B-cells, versus modulating B-cells with Bruton's tyrosine kinase, so that's one potential advantage, without creating the same level of immunodeficiency. In that immunodeficiency, what we all worry about is risk of infection. And so we know that our patients who are treated with anti-CD20 therapies can be at a higher risk for common, very treatable infections. But there's also data from the right that raise concern about poorer outcomes or higher hospitalization rates during COVID with the anti-CD20 therapies. But listed at the bottom are a series of FDA-approved therapies for multiple sclerosis. And what you saw is the dots go higher, were higher hospitalization rates, particularly with the B cell depleting therapies in the middle right side of that graph. And the theory, again, not yet proven in large trials, is perhaps a gentler modification of B cells would achieve a therapeutic benefit without the same risk of infection. An unproven hypothesis that we'll explore in the clinical trial data that you'll hear about in a moment. So before we get to the clinical trial data, I wanted to end my portion of this morning by focusing on this slide, which looks really complicated, but I actually consider the most important thing about Bruton's tyrosine kinase and potential inhibitors for the clinicians. And that is you're going to hear about a lot of different drugs from Dr. O. We're going to look at a lot of different drugs that are in trials and in development. And we are used to, as a profession, thinking about drugs as classes the interferons, the S1Ps, the anti-CD20s. And I'll speak for myself. I don't parse them dramatically in the clinic. I don't say, well, one is dramatically different than the other. And I'm sure I'm offending multiple companies in the room as I make that statement. And I don't apologize. BTK as a group is going to be different. And we need to start wrapping our minds around the fact that when you modify an enzyme, there are a lot of important features of the inhibitor that will relate to efficacy, safety, and side effects. And this is something that's been seen in the oncology literature with BTK inhibition, and it has to do with this enzyme. When you look at the tech protein family, which BTK is a part of, there are multiple domains in the enzyme. And lots of different enzymes beyond Bruton's tyrosine kinase has these domains. So depending on where the inhibitor binds, how strongly it binds, and some other features that we're going to talk about in a bit, you can have wildly different tolerability, safety, and in the end, efficacy. And so as we see clinical trials finish, phase three registrational clinical trials, and the first, hopefully, knock on wood, gets approved so that it's a benefit to our patients and their experience with the disease, the second one is gonna be different than the first. The third is going to be different than the second, and we have to avoid the thinking of a class of drugs. In my opinion, because of the enzymatic activity and how we inhibit it, we really need to judge each on their merits and on their profiles and not assume they will all be exactly the same. And we see some of that with the evidence from the clinical trials. This is actually, I think, a foundationally, critically important slide to our thinking literally 20 years later. And I really enjoy it because of that dotted black line in the middle, the clinical threshold, There is so much going on in the brains and spinal cords of our patients that we cannot assess clinically, that we cannot appreciate, quantify, measure, or follow, but is critically important to the 10, 20, 30, 40-year outcomes that our patients care so much about. And the more we dig into what's happening relative to progression, progression independent of relapse activity, axonal loss on a chronic basis, the better we will be serving our patients because it's only when it crosses that dotted black line that the damage is done. And we're now going to be looking for restorative or reparative therapies, which is a lot harder. Prevention is easier than restoration. And so if indeed meningeal follicles and microglia are the key, if they are, to that axonal loss over time, targeting them is going to be really important. All right, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. O.
2: Thank you, Ben, for that outstanding overview. And very nice to see so many of you so bright and early in the morning. Just briefly wanted to introduce myself. My name is Jiwon Oh, and I'm a neurologist, mainly an MS specialist practicing at the University of Toronto at St. Michael's Hospital. And today I'll be dovetailing on everything that Ben discussed and give you an overview of what the clinical trial landscape looks like with BTK inhibitors. So this is a table summarizing not all of the BTK inhibitors in development in MS, but the ones that have at least started in human clinical trials. And Dr. Greenberg alluded to this earlier, but, you know, in the MS, world, I think we are used to different therapeutic compounds that fall into the same class of drug. Um, I think he made some really important points about BTK inhibitors and the fact that there are these slight differences with respect to binding, as you can see here, reversibility, selectivity, that may make a world of a difference, even though technically these drugs belong to the same class of molecule. But as you can see from this table, I think one thing that's clear is that I don't think there ever has been a time in MS drug. Drug development where there are so many compounds that you know technically belong to the same class of molecule that are being investigated so intensely almost at the same time although as you can see many of these drugs are in different phases of development and it's a really exciting time because we likely will be getting readouts from many of these phase three clinical trials in the next few years so in this table, we did highlight the two BTK inhibitors, evobrutinib and tolibrutinib, which in the MS field are farthest along in development. These are the ones that you know are currently being investigated in phase three clinical trials. And we're very excited because hopefully there will be some readouts from these studies in the very near future. In addition, evobrutinib and tolebrutinib are the two molecules that have been tested in phase two clinical trials, and I'll go over some of the core and extension data in just a second. And have clearly shown efficacy in relapsing MS. So we'll just start with the evobrutinib trials, and this is because evobrutinib is first amongst all of those BTK inhibitors in terms of having um, reported results from a Phase 2 clinical trial and is farther along in its clinical development program with the Phase 3 clinical trial. Hopefully, we'll be reporting some results in the very near future. So I think this is probably a review slide for many of you, but let's just go through it again because I think it is very important that this was the first BTK inhibitor in relapsing MS that showed efficacy and met its primary endpoint in a phase two clinical trial. So this phase two clinical trial design was a little bit complicated because often the goal of phase two clinical trials, it's a proof of concept study, but also a dose finding study. So as you can see, there were five arms in this phase two clinical trial. There was a placebo arm and even Evobrutinib at various doses, and there was even an active control arm of dimethyl fumarate treatment initially was blinded for the first 24 weeks and then continued blinded for the 24-week extension after that. But at that 24-week point, the placebo arm did transition to the lowest dose of evobrutinib. As you can see, the endpoints that were evaluated included frequent MRIs as well as clinical endpoints. But the trial was really powered to assess the primary endpoint, which is typical for most phase 2 clinical trials of relapsing MS, the effect of evobrutinib on gadolinium-enhanced lesions. When we look at the primary endpoint of gadolinium-enhancing lesions, as you can see, evobrutinib at the higher doses did show an effect. Interestingly, evobrutinib at 75 milligrams once a day, which is outlined in the blue bar here, significantly showed a reduction in T1 gadolinium-enhancing lesions. Evobrutinib at 75 milligrams twice a day, which is actually the dose that is currently being used in phase 3 clinical trials, showed a trend towards a reduction. And then the lower dose did not show a significant difference. And as you can see, dimethylfumarate, which was the active control arm, did not show a difference versus placebo. But this was likely driven by a single individual that had a startling number of gadolinium-enhancing lesions. In terms of rates of treatment and emergent adverse events, including grade 3 and serious AEs, this was comparable between evobrutinib, the lower doses, and placebo. But in the evobrutinib, 75 milligrams twice a day, it was higher. And this was mainly driven by asymptomatic increases in liver enzymes, which is something that has been seen um, in a number of different BTK inhibitors. In addition, there was evidence of a dose-response relationship, with higher doses of evobrutinib seemingly showing a greater reduction in T1 gadolinium-enhancing lesions. Moving on, looking at clinical outcomes, which obviously as clinicians we are very interested in, but please do keep in mind that this was a phase two clinical trial. So the study was not powered to look at differences in clinical endpoints. Nonetheless, it's very informative to look at these clinical endpoints. And as you can see, with the higher doses of evobrutinib, there was, from a numerical standpoint, what looks like a very clear reduction in the annualized relapse rate. But again, keep in mind that the study was not powered to evaluate these clinical outcomes comes, Moving on, when we look at something called slowly evolving or expanding lesions, and Dr. Greenberg touched on this when he talked about the different biologies that underlie MS. And there's an intense focus now in the field on trying to address the central nervous system compartmentalized biological processes, which we think are responsible for progression that we actually see across the spectrum of MS. So one of the imaging measures that we can focus on that seems to reflect chronic, active, or small lesions is something called cells or slowly evolving or expanding lesions. And I don't want to bog you down with too many technical details about this, but what this is, is when you have sequential MRIs that are done over time, you can look at existing T2 hyperintense lesions, so white matter lesions that we typically see in MS. And those, there's a certain proportion of these existing lesions that do slowly expand over time in a concentric manner. And you can do this using typical clinical-grade MRIs that are collected in the clinic, actually, and in clinical trial settings. And the reason why there's such a focus on this is, you know, no imaging measure is perfect. But theoretically, you can understand that at least a part of these slowly evolving or expanding lesions likely capture these chronic active lesions that we're really interested in. Because these are these lesions with this rim of activated microglia, and Ben talked about this earlier. And we think that these chronic active lesions are a major driver of that relapse-independent central nervous system compartmentalized biology that we really want to target. And so it makes sense in clinical trials and many of the BTKI clinical trials as well as other compounds are now including this measure of SELs or slowly evolving or expanding lesions because we're interested to see whether they have an effect on cells. Another thing that you've probably heard a lot about are paramagnetic rim lesions. And I'll be talking about that in the context of the tolibrutinib clinical trial. But this is another way that in the imaging field, we think we are able to image at least a subset of these chronic active lesions. So I'll tell you a little bit more about pearls when we get to that slide. But I wanted to highlight in this slide, cells were evaluated in the phase two clinical trial with evobrutinib. And this was done over a 48-week period. And as you can see, evobrutinib at the higher doses compared to people who had started on placebo at the beginning of the clinical trial reduced the number of cells in comparison to the lower doses of evobrutinib. So, you know, this is an early analysis. It's only over 40 weeks but I think it's important because it shows us, yes we, you know we don't know exactly what cells are capturing but based on my description it's pretty clear that it likely captures at least a subset of these chronic active lesions and at least based on this analysis here it does seem that evobrutinib at higher doses does reduce the volume of uh, slowly evolving or expanding lesions in comparison to people who had been on placebo then transitioned to 25 milligrams of evobrutinib in the first 48 weeks. There have been extension data of evobrutinib reported over two and a half years and even longer. As you can see from all of these bullet points here, the majority of participants did complete the two and a half year long-term extension. People who were initially in the dimethyl fumarate arm did have a washout period. And then everybody in the extension started on evobrutinib at 75 milligrams once a day. And then after about a year, transitioned to 75 milligrams twice a day. And this was because the company was trying to figure out what the right dose would be in the phase three clinical trials, and eventually the 75 milligrams BID dose was selected. So over time, when you look at how people did, and again, keep in mind based on the study design, initially there were five different arms, and people transitioned at 24 weeks into different doses of evobrutinib, and then everybody transitioned to 75 milligrams once a day, and then everybody transitioned to 75 milligrams twice a day. So when you look at the mean number of T1 GAD lesions, initially there was a bit of a rise, but this fell after everybody switched to 75 Milligrams twice a day because it's clear that this is the dose that is being used in the phase three clinical trials and likely the most effective dose of the doses that were evaluated. When we looked at the medium volume of T2 lesions, the change was low over two and a half years, which was reassuring. Looking at EDSS scores, and again, you need to take these clinical outcomes with a grain of salt just because the phase two clinical trial wasn't powered to look at differences, but again, it's really informative to see how things change. The mean EDSS score remains stable, and overall, the change from base baseline was low across all treatment groups and the annualized relapse rate of 0.09 was very low and this was what was reported after all patients were switched over to the 75 milligrams twice a day dose which again is the dose that is being evaluated in phase three clinical trials. Recently, there was a a three-and-a-half-year extension that was reported, and again, the majority of people completed up to three-and-a-half years, which speaks to probably the tolerability as well as the safety of the drug. The pooled annualized relapse rate remained low up to three-and-a-half years, and reassuringly, there were no new safety signals that emerged. So just wanted to let you know, there are a number of posters being presented here at Actrims on various aspects of evobrutinib, including its effect on serum neurofilament, as well as a number of um, animal studies that may be of interest. Moving on, I just wanted to go over the tolabrutinib phase 2 clinical trial data, because again, evobrutinib and tolabrutinib are the two molecules that have been evaluated in phase 2 clinical trials and extension studies and are farthest along in clinical development. So just don't want to, again, bog you down with too many details, but I think this slide is familiar to you. But I think worth highlighting that tolebrutinib used a very interesting study design that was unique for a phase two clinical trial in MS and in my mind, really efficient and smart as long as regulatory agencies will accept it, which they did. So as you can see, this was a study that had a placebo run in and run out period and allowed for the evaluation of four different doses of tolebrutinib over a very short time period of 16 weeks. So this was great because you want phase two trials to be efficient and to evaluate the primary endpoint of interest and to do it over a period of 16 weeks, in my mind, is smart, again, because we want to be as efficient as possible when we're looking at proof of concept studies. After the initial double-blind period, there was a gap period that varied in duration and this was mainly related to administrative issues. And then in long-term extension part A, everybody continued on the same dose of tolibrutinib that they had been on in the double-blind phase two study. And then in part B, once the dose of 60 milligrams was decided upon for the dose that would be evaluated in phase three clinical trials, everyone has continued on 60 since that time. So when we look at the primary endpoint of interest, which was uh, T1 gadolinium enhancing lesions, as you can see, there was clearly an effect of tolibrutinib at 60 milligrams once a day versus placebo. So it did meet its primary endpoint. And then recently, two-year safety and efficacy data have been reported for tolibrutinib. And reassuringly, there were no new safety signals in the phase two clinical trial at week 96. Here is a list of the most common adverse events. By far, the most common AE was COVID-19, headache, nasopharyngitis, bacterial cystitis, and pharyngitis. And again, these are not surprising, similar to what we see with many compounds in MS. When efficacy outcomes were evaluated, and again, keep in mind because this is the phase two clinical trial, It was not powered to detect differences in clinical outcomes, but again, informative to look at least at the magnitude of this. Among those who received tolibrutinib at 60 milligrams per day, which was the dose that was decided upon for at least eight weeks, the annualized relapse rate was low at 0.17. Over 80% of people remained relapse-free, and similar to what we saw with evobrutinib, the mean EDSS score remained stable up to the two-year extension data. Moving on, again, getting to those slowly evolving or expanding lesions, as well as the paramagnetic rim lesions that I told you about earlier. So again, in a nutshell, these are imaging methods that we think are useful because they likely capture at least a subset of these chronic active smoldering lesions, which we're really interested in because they are likely a primary driver of progression that we see in MS. So when cell volume was evaluated at week 96, again, this is not a clear Comparative study because you do need longitudinal scans to look at cells. But when you actually just look at the volume of cells at week 96, as you can see in the 60 60 milligram arm, the volume was lowest. And so, difficult to draw conclusions just because, again, there isn't a clear comparator. Nonetheless, and we don't actually know what the cell volume was at the beginning of the study. However, it's interesting because, as you can see, the highest dose of tolubrutinib did have the lowest volume of cells, which is encouraging. When we looked at paramagnetic rim lesions, which is a method using iron-sensitive sequences to detect chronic lesions that have a rim of activated microglia around it. There wasn't very much change, and this was actually only evaluated in a subset of patients. However, there were a few things. Two patients who had pearls at baseline did not have any at week 96, and then three patients had one to three additional pearls at week 96 compared with baseline. So not a huge amount of change, but as you can see over this time period, there is still some detectable change, and reassuringly, none of the new pearls developed in people who were on the highest dose of tolibrutinib, which again is the dose that is being used in phase three clinical trials. There was a subset analysis done of people with highly active disease, and the two-year data for the 60 milligram dose showed safety and tolerability that was comparable to the overall population with a low annualized relapse rate, low GAD lesions, and stable EDSS scores. So it seems that tolebrutinib was effective even in the subgroup that were thought to have highly active disease. Okay, just a note, there is an abstract being presented here at Actrims looking at tolibrutinib and CSF and plasma concentrations. And I thought this abstract was worth highlighting because this looked at healthy volunteers who were given a single dose of tolibrutinib at 60 or 120 milligrams. And tolibrutinib was detected in the CSF at all time points for both doses. So these were evaluated at one, two, and four hours. And in the 60 milligram dose, tolibrutinib exceeded its cellular potency for microglia. So it's IC50. So So this is reassuring because it shows that tolebrutinib clearly has CSF penetration and that it achieves a concentration that is relevant to affecting microglia. And this is relevant to what Dr. Greenberg said.
0: So this last portion is going to be a tag team for G1 and myself before we open things up to questions. One of the questions that comes up that we want to address up front is we've talked about what we've done in terms of BTK research and the trials that have happened in MS, but what can we expect in the future relative to BTK inhibition impacting MS care? So, I'm going to ask Jiwan to just walk us through the current phase three clinical trials. And as you mentioned, there's a huge explosion of these trials. And I don't think we have ever seen in MS one drug target have this number of trials going on simultaneously. I mean, this has been incredible.
2: It's a busy, busy clinical development landscape uh, with BTKIs, as you can see. And we talked in detail about evobrutinib and tolabrutinib, which are farthest along in development. And as you can see, so the evo clinical trials have actually completed recruitment, and so have three of the four tolibrutinib clinical trials. And then there is fenabrutinib and remibrutinib that are recruiting for various clinical trials. As you can see, there's differences in patient populations for what these trials are evaluating. Tolabrutinib probably has the most extensive clinical development program because there are dedicated studies in relapsing MS as well as secondary progressive MS and primary progressive MS. But as you can see, busy landscape, lots of excitement, and some of these trials have completed recruitment, so really excited. Times because we'll likely be hearing about results in the very near future.
0: So, as I ended my talk at the beginning of this, the differences in terms of how you inhibit the enzyme, selectivity of the domain of the enzyme you bind to. We've heard about other aspects of BTK inhibitors that are going to play a big role in how they work. So the domain target is one, selectivity. You heard from G1 the notion of reversible versus non-reversible, covalent versus non-covalent binding. And then you saw the data from tolibrutinib for CNS penetration. There is going to be a lot of discussion in the world on the relative merits of each of these features. So you're going to hear people discussing how higher CNS penetration is absolutely critical to the success of the drug well, it may or may not be based on whether you're reversible or irreversible binding, covalent or non-covalent binding. It's not just about CNS penetration. It's about all of these features coming together to give you a unique impact on the pathophysiology of the disease. So as we've looked at all of these, there's not a clear guideline on what's the profile you want in a BTK inhibitor. Because if your highly CNS penetrant, irreversibly binding drug doesn't have the best selectivity such that there's a lot of off-target effects and side effects, gastrointestinal side effects or hepatic side effects, adverse events, that's a problem. And so as you're looking through all these different trials and the list that G1 presented that you're going to be seeing data on over the next year, we have to keep all of these in perspective. And so we get questions about the differences in the class. And so one of the questions that comes up, and I'll ask Juana if she's formulated thoughts on this, is are there aspects that should be rated highest on the list between those different variables? And do you think that that's going to associate or drive the efficacy or the safety?
2: So You know, Ben, as you said, I think ultimately the data will inform us, but I agree with you. I think there are these, you know, we have these charts where we list these differences between the BTK inhibitors. And ultimately for clinicians, it boils down to differences in efficacy and safety. And I think, you know, with pieces like the selectivity and the domain binding, this will affect safety of many of these molecules. And I think our phase two clinical trials are informative, but they're not in large numbers of people. So ultimately, the phase three clinical trials and extension data will be really informative in terms of safety. And then there could be differences in efficacy. And particularly, as you said, with the CNS penetration, but all of these other factors relevant, the big question is, will there be an efficacy difference in terms of this CNS compartmentalized processes that we really want some molecule to target in the MS field? And I think time and clinical trial data will tell, really hoping that we'll be able to see a difference. But as you said, I don't think we know exactly what that key piece is that will make a difference because there are so many things that are involved. CNS penetration, its effect on specific cells, selectivity, covalent binding, reversibility, all of these things. So bottom line is I do think there will be meaningful differences clinically and from a safety standpoint, and only time and clinical trial data will allow us to discern what they are.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the questions along those lines that come up with the clinical trial data is there's a diversity of clinical trials out there, you saw them. So there are some agents that are being looked at just in relapsing remitting, some in both progressive and relapsing remitting with different comparators. One of the concerns I have about these drugs is and the reason I kind of stand on a soapbox against class effects is it's quite possible we may get to the end of the phase 3 trials with some drugs hitting their endpoint in relapsing-remitting disease, and some drugs hitting their endpoint in both relapsing-remitting and progressive. And the question is going to be, can you translate data from one trial to another? My short answer is going to be no. I don't know if you have thoughts on this.
2: You know, I think a really important point, and I think this is something that the field is grappling with. We talk about how we currently classify MS. And we all know as clinicians that, unlike textbooks in real life, that neat classification that we have of the breakdown of relapsing MS from progressive types of MS, it's not that clear. And we have a lot of data accumulating showing that the biological processes underlying MS are present across the entire spectrum of MS. So the question comes, up of do we need a better categorization. And I am concerned about this, to be honest, as a clinician, just because regulatory agencies tend to approve based on exactly the clinical trial population that were evaluated. However, we know as clinicians that it's not that simple. And so access will be an issue when there are limited clinical trials, unless by some miracle um, as a field, we're able to come up with a better way to classify and then translate some of the findings that we see from the relapsing trials to the progressive trials?
0: So one of the things that comes up is in terms of how do we track this and what are we looking for? So we get asked, is it really possible for BTK inhibition to alter the phenotype of those myeloid cells? So there have been studies looking at both cytokine production of bone marrow-derived cells, looking at phagocytosis, and then looking at stimulation. And in each of these, there is consistent evidence that inhibiting Bruton's tyrosine kinase does lead to a change in myeloid cell function and phenotype. What we're all trying to answer in the clinical trials is how does this actually translate into clinical practice? How does this really affect our multiple sclerosis patients? So G1, I'm going to put you on the spot in these competing theories of progression in multiple sclerosis. So meningeal follicles and B cells being a driving force versus microglial activation versus both. Do you subscribe to one or the other or a different theory of progression in MS? Because ultimately that's going to dictate whether or not this drug will help our patients.
2: You know, I think we've identified that there are different cells underlying different processes in MS. I don't think we yet have a clear grasp of a clear sequence of timing and what proportions an individual patient has in front of you of these different biologies and pathophysiologic processes. So, you know, in terms of how we would use BTK inhibitors in clinical practice, again, I think it's going to largely depend on the data that we see from the phase three clinical trials. But from a theoretical standpoint, I think it will be very likely that these molecules will be be relevant across the spectrum of MS. And ultimately, I think we need better biomarkers to allow us in an individual patient to tell, you know, kind of what proportion of the biology is related to the peripherally mediated component versus the centrally mediated component. And these kind of measures will allow us to make more personalized treatment decisions. What that magic biomarker is, I don't know. I don't think it exists yet. But in the end, I think we need a better way to know what is a driver of pathophysiology in an individual patient, and that will allow us to make treatment decisions at a certain stage of disease that may differ in an individual patient. At a certain stage of disease, you may even consider a combination therapy, which is another can of worms related to safety. So we're not going to go there, but this is what we need. We need better tests that allow us to know what the best molecule is in an individual patient because it can differ dramatically.
0: So I agree we need the personalized medicine approach, but let's imagine a world where one or more BTK inhibitor hits its endpoint on, let's say it's one of the ones doing relapse remitting and progressive trial, and it's got reasonable safety. So there are no opportunistic infections in the trial. There are no deaths. There's not a big safety signal. There's some UTIs and URIs and things that we're all used to seeing in these different clinical trials. And there isn't a concern on hepatic toxicity. We get to a relatively comfortable place in terms of the safety, but. It's the endpoints, would you consider this a first-line therapy for patients, particularly if we have a drug that hits both the progressive endpoint and the relapsing-remitting endpoint?
2: Yes, as long as the safety is reasonable to have a molecule that can convincingly target both the relapsing and progressive biology. And again, there's more and more evidence showing that this is relevant even in, you know, the, quote, pre-symptomatic stages of MS. Yes, I would. Mm -hmm.
0: So one of the questions we get that I'm going to advance the slide and let you answer is in some of the drugs we've used that we're all familiar with that are FDA approved, there are concerns about rebounds after you stop a therapy, and it comes up in a variety of different clinical situations having to hold a therapy. And so can you walk us through what we know relative to concerns or potential concerns about rebound inflammation?
2: Sure. So if you think back to that slide that I showed you about the design of the tolebrutinib phase two clinical trial, it was unique because it was efficient but there was a placebo run-in and run-out period. And because of that placebo run-out period, where patients were treated with four different doses of tolibrutinib, then there was a four-week period where there was a placebo run-out. It allowed for at least a shorter-term evaluation of rebound. So in the cohort that had been treated with tolibrutinib for 12 weeks and then were on placebo for four weeks, preliminary findings suggested that discontinuing the study drug did not induce rebound disease activity in the form of clinical relapses or... MRI lesions. However, this was only over a period of four weeks, but this is still enough time for the drug to be out of the system. And so longer observation periods are needed. However, this is some early evidence, again, in small numbers in the phase two clinical trial, but because of the unique design allowed for an evaluation of rebound disease activity. And during those four weeks for tolibrutinib, it was not observed.
0: Great. Thank you. So, summaries and and reflections are listed here and I'll go through some of the questions we've gotten so far on this topic. So one of the topics that came up was around an oral medication and twice-a-day dosing and whether or not that plays a role in how we evaluate these medicines. And I think implied in this is questions about compliance, adherence, and efficacy. And do you take anything away from the evabrutinib trial data, where there was once-a-day and then twice-a-day dosing, that raised concerns or confidence in terms of how we would use these drugs in the clinic?
2: Well, I mean, I think we have experience with uh, various molecules that we currently have available that have differences in dosing. So once daily dosing versus twice daily dosing. And there's no denying that, you know, more dosing is not fun. (laughs) But I wouldn't say it's the only factor relevant to compliance. So obviously, tolerability is a big piece in this. And I think if there is very clear evidence that a certain molecule has an effect that others do not, that is motivation for patients to be more compliant. But the convenience piece, I'm sure, Ben, you know, you see this in your patients too. It is a major one. It's not as fun to take a drug twice a day as opposed to once a day. However, if this is the dose that's available and has clearly shown, you know, an efficacy difference, I don't think it will be a major factor driving compliance. What do you think?
0: Well, I don't know what you're talking about. All of my patients are 100% compliant (laughs) with all their drugs all the time. Because ben is te- much
2: more convincing. They than tell, I tell am. me they
0: are, and they never lie to me ever. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree. But I I think this is there's an opportunity here also with these drugs. You you brought it up earlier in terms of personalized medicine. I think we are in our field hungry and desperate for markers of dosing and drug efficacy versus a one size fits all dose for everybody. It'd be great to have a measure that whatever dose they're taking not what you prescribed but whatever dose they're actually taking is achieving a biologic impact which is associated with the clinical efficacy and i think there's an opportunity for the BTK inhibitors to develop those type of biomarkers we really don't have it with other drugs in a reproducible way one of the questions here and it was on one of the slides had to do with If we hit endpoints in these trials, you crack the door open on the notion of combination therapy, something that we've shied away from in our field. We don't have trials in it. Based on mechanism of action, if the trials hit their endpoints. Is there a reason to consider this drug either, I'll expand on the question, for combination therapy or some sort of sequential therapy paradigm? Is this mechanism of action lend itself to that thinking?
2: So, you know, I think you can get really creative with this. And again, this will all depend on what the clinical trial data show. But I have to say, I did bring up combination therapy, but it makes me deeply uncomfortable just because it's a tough sell for patients. And then there's always this huge safety concern. However, I do think it may be part of the future, but actually what makes sense to me is with if the BTKIs hit the endpoints that we think they will, sequential therapy might make sense. And so there are existing therapies that we have that we know are highly effective with respect to the peripherally mediated inflammation, and then there's longer term benefits. So in somebody with, say, really aggressive disease, I might consider hitting them hard initially with some one of the infusion therapies and then consider transitioning them in the longer run to a BTKI which has hopefully both central and peripheral effects. So that type of kind of sequencing makes sense to me, but obviously we'll need some evidence to support that.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right. I think the field is ripe now for many more sequencing trials and asking the question, does the order make a difference and is there additional benefit? And I agree with you. I think combination therapy trials are going to be difficult to do. And just frankly, from an expense perspective, it's hard for me to imagine being able for the healthcare system to manage the expense of multiple of these drugs at one single time. So it's going to be difficult to get there. I like this question because it's very straightforward. Agree or disagree, we need measures of performance ability that are objective, multidimensional, to show functional ability, stability, or instability over the course of a person's existence. Do you agree or disagree? Agree. Agree, yeah. (laughs) 100%. There's a wonderful paper that came out from our colleagues in Spain on progression of independent relapse activity in early disease goers just in the last couple months in JAMA Neurology. If you haven't seen it, it's worth looking at because it's really quantifying based on EDS the quantity of our patients who are having progression early in the course of their disease. And I think for all of us in clinics, we have those group of patients who come in and tell us they're not doing well, but we can't quantify it in any meaningful way. And it leaves me always worried. Are there microglial cell activation causing problems that I can't measure? So I think we both agree with this. And then I think we have time for one last question, and it has to do with trial designs. So this question is asking about one of the drugs, but I'm gonna talk about all the drugs. When you look through the trial designs, comparators, inclusion criteria, washout periods, you made the comment that the phase two tolubrutinib trial was an efficient, novel, different phase two trial design. In the phase three trial designs, are there any that are standing out to you in particularly positive or negative lights? Things that you'd like to see the field do in in terms of these phase three trials.
2: I mean, I can't think of any that are happening right now that have unique designs that are radically different. But I think there are certain study designs, including adaptive study designs, that I think make sense in the setting of phase three clinical trials, because it's a huge expense and following people for a long time. MS is a chronic disease, and I think having the flexibility to adapt and uh, to get as much information out of a clinical trial as possible makes sense. But I know it's complicated, and I'm not a statistician, and I don't know how these things affect power calculations and all these things. But it seems pretty clear just based on that Tolabrutinid example that there's a lot that we can do to save time and resources at various stages of clinical development to allow us to plow through many different therapies to see which ones work the best. I agree. Thank
0: you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward/ycw860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.